Well, much has changed in the last week in the life of our church. Little did I know that I would have the privilege of preaching the first service here at the Dubai Evangelical Church Center. But the Lord knew. The Lord knew. The Lord is never caught unaware. He's never shocked. He's never surprised. And he promises to use all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Though lots has changed this week, there is one thing that never changes. The Lord doesn't change. His word endures forever. And that is what we need most. There's nothing better that we could do with our time here this evening than to listen to God in his word. So let's take these next few moments together to fix our attention on what the Lord has to say to us from his word. But before we, before we do that, let's pray and ask for his help. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your grace to us this day. We pray that you would give us even more of your grace to transform our lives so that our faith would be strengthened and that it would be effective to know how to live lives that are pleasing in your sight. All for the sake of your Son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. This evening we'll be looking at the letter of Paul that he wrote to Philemon. So please turn there in your Bibles. You'll find it between Paul's letter to Titus and the letter to the Hebrews. Although this is Paul's shortest letter, it packs quite a punch. So I'd encourage you to go away even after this and to study it further because it's relatively unknown. You don't hear a lot of teaching on Philemon and it's incredible how much there is packed into these few verses. We can piece together some of the backstory from the content of the letter itself, and we can also piece together from other parts of Scripture what the story was behind this letter. Philemon, who the letter is written to, was a wealthy Christian, and he, had a man, he and a man called Epaphras started a church in the city of Colossae that met in Philemon's home. Like all wealthy patriarchs in the Roman Empire at that time, Philemon had slaves, and one of them was a man called Onesimus. At some point, and we're not exactly sure why, but Onesimus fled from Colossae, and he traveled to Rome, the most populated city in the Roman Empire, most likely trying to evade capture and to hide out from his master Philemon, who he'd run from. But in God's incredible sovereignty... Philemon, I mean Onesimus, sorry, running into the most populated city to get away from his master, ran into Paul, the apostle, who was imprisoned there, and he met his heavenly master. He became a Christian. Just pause and think about that for a moment. Just picture God's sovereignty in that. That Philemon was running away, trying to ch run away from his, his wrongdoing, and he came into contact by God's sovereignty with Paul. Isn't that amazing? That he was running away from his sin, and then he ended up meeting his Savior. Maybe that's some of your testimonies here today. 
Maybe you came running from wherever you're from to Dubai to run away from something, some wrongdoing or something like that. And then you met God in the most unlikely of places, here in the desert. So Onesimus becomes a Christian, and he eagerly seeks to serve Paul. But Paul encourages him to go back to Colossae and back to Philemon, and he writes this letter to go along with Philemon, to, to Philemon, and he also writes the letter to the Colossian church, the one that meets in Philemon's home. Follow along as we read Philemon, as I, I, I read Philemon aloud. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because of the hearts of the saints, they've been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what's required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he's wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The main theme of Paul's letter here is this. God's reconciling power through the gospel of grace. God's reconciling power through the gospel of grace. 
I'm going to unpack this theme in two main points. Point number one, give thanks and ask for God's transforming grace. Give thanks and ask for God's transforming grace. Notice how Paul opens the letter. He's writing to Philemon while still imprisoned in Rome, but he doesn't address Philemon alone. In fact, he mentions a woman, Aphia, our sister, perhaps that's Philemon's wife, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and finally, the church which gathers in your house. It's important that we take note of this because this letter is incredibly personal, isn't it? But it isn't private. In fact, the whole Christian community is involved. They're all aware of what's happened. They're intimately involved in each other's lives. The Christian life is intensely personal, but it isn't private. Even Paul writes the letter and he says that he's writing along with Timothy, our brother. And he sends greetings from Epaphras, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke. Paul's living life in community as well. Paul follows this greeting with a thankful prayer, beginning in verse 4. Paul is thankful for Philemon's love and faith towards the Lord Jesus Christ and for all the saints. That's the Christians. Philemon's faith in the gospel has transformed his affections, not only for God himself, but also for God's people. And by God's grace, Philemon has believed in the good news, he's repented of his sins, he's trusted in Christ, and it's leading to love for God and love for God's people. Does that describe your experience with the gospel of grace? Has God's grace in Christ impacted the way that you view and think about the Christians in your life? The saints in this church, the members of Covenant Hope, your fellow brothers and sisters. Our faith in the gospel of grace isn't merely a get-out-of-hell-free card. It doesn't just save us from God's wrath against our sins. Grace transforms our lives. It brings us from being dead in our sins and transgressions to being alive in Christ, who overcame our sin, nailing it to the cross, and rose from the grave to show that the payment had been received and so that we might have the grace to have lives that are transformed, that are new. That's what happened in Philemon's life, and that's what Paul is giving thanks and praise to God. Every time he remembers Philemon, he thanks God and he praises him for that grace. Not only does he thank God for this grace, he continues to ask for more of it. Keep reading along with me in verse 6. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Do you see what Paul's asking for here? He's asking God to continue to transform Philemon's life and the believers around him. He's asking that the faith that's shared by Philemon and the believers that meet in his home would be effective, that it would be active, that it would be put to work among them. Grace doesn't cha just change our beliefs. Saving grace changes the way we live. Saving faith is always active faith. It's always busy in the lives of those who possess it. 
Is that how you think about faith in Christ? As something active? Not something merely theoretical or a concept that you think about, but as something that we act out impacting our relationships with the Christians around us. The word sharing in verse 6 refers to their shared faith as a church, not their evangelistic sharing of the faith, though I'm sure Paul wants that to be fruitful too. We know that because the word translated sharing here is koinonia, which in other translations says your participation in the faith, or it really means their partnership. They're partnering together in the faith that they share, or fellowship, some translations say. Because he's praying that the, the, the faith that they share would be effective in them, among them, in us, it says. That is, in the church. Our faith must always be personal, but it's never private. It's always in partnership with other Christians in the church. So Paul's praying that their partnership in the faith together as a church would be active, effective, so that it would, they would know more fully how to live lives that are pleasing to God, how to live out their faith in all kinds of different ways, in every good thing, Paul says. Paul wants Philemon and the church that meets in his home to know how to live out their faith in everything that they do. Brothers and sisters, do you consider your faith in this way? As something active, but something that you partner with other people in as well. As something that's worked out in your lives together, that is visible to the world around us. You should. That's what Paul is praying for here. And that's even what Jesus himself taught. He said, by this they will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The world can see this kind of faith. Do you pray like this? Do you pray like Paul does here? Do you pray thanking God for his transforming grace in the lives of fellow believers around you? We ought to generate a habit of giving thanks to God for the faith and love that we share here together as Covenant Hope. Praising Him that He's working in us and that grace is building us up, that it's effective. And we should pray asking God for even more of it, even more grace so that our faith and our fellowship would be active, so that we would know how to live lives that please God even more than we do today. Paul is modeling that for us here. His prayer is a model for us. Remember that Paul, right, right when he's writing this, is imprisoned in Rome. He's in chains. And his prayers are filled with praising God for the grace that he's heard about and seen in other people's lives and other churches around the world. Hopefully, you see that when we get up and, like Nissen, praise for churches around the city here, but even beyond this city. We should cultivate lives that are praying prayers like this for the members of our church and for the churches around us. And so I want to give you some simple steps how you can cultivate prayer like this in your life. Four simple practical steps to, to cultivate prayer like this. Number one, mimic Paul's prayers. Pray the very same things for the Christians around you that you read in the scriptures that Paul is praying for people. Just like this prayer here. 
These are Holy Spirit-inspired prayer requests. So we should use them. Number two, look for signs of grace in other people's lives. Look for signs of grace in them. Sadly, it's so much easier for us to see ways that we should be praying for people to stop sinning or to grow more. And it's so unusual for us to think of praising God for all the good that we see Him doing in some people's lives. But Paul here thanks and praises God for the good that he sees in Philemon. He says in verse 7 that he, Paul, has derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Step three, listen carefully to the prayers in our services, especially the pastoral prayers. That's the one that Nissen or one of the other elders here at the church prays. These are carefully thought through. They're examples for you to learn from about how and what kinds of things to be praying for one another. Step number four, pray through the membership directory. If you're a member of the church, you can get one of these, which has a list of all of the members in it, and just go through it page by page, thanking God for the other members in the church, and pray for our partnership in the gospel at Covenant Hope to deepen and be effective for the full knowledge of every good thing. Pick up a physical copy from Lil, or uh, you should be able to get a digital copy on your phone that you can use in, in, in place of a, of a physical copy. Paul gives thanks and asks for even more of God's grace to be evident in the lives of Philemon and the church that meets in his home. And we should do the same thing here at Covenant Hope. We should be in people of prayer for one another. Paul celebrates the evidence of grace that he sees in other people's lives and that he hears about how Christians are being built up and encouraged and their hearts are being refreshed. Paul seems always to have an eternal perspective in his prayers. May our prayers for one another and for our church always, always include asking for more of God's grace so that our faith would be worked out in all kinds of ways, so that the hearts of the saints would be refreshed at Covenant Hope. Let's commit ourselves to praying like this and see what God does. It could be incredible. Paul turns from giving thanks and asking for more of God's transforming grace to a specific way in which this transforming grace can be worked out in the life of Philemon, which leads to the second point of the sermon. Seek reconciliation by God's grace. Seek reconciliation by God's grace. Paul turns from prayer to making an appeal to Philemon. And notice verse 8 begins with accordingly, or in some translations, therefore, or for this reason. Paul's about to give one clear way that, that Philemon's faith can be effective or demonstrated in his actions. One way that if Philemon listens, his prayer will be answered. Paul says in verse 10, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. He calls Philemon to seek reconciliation with Onesimus, his former slave, who ran away, but has now become Paul's son in the faith, and Paul desires that their broken relationship, that it might be restored as a result of God's transforming grace in their lives. 
In this letter, we learn many important things about reconciliation, and I'll draw your attention to four lessons that Paul teaches us about reconciliation. Lesson number one, reconciliation flows out of love, not simply obligation. Reconciliation flows out of love, not simply obligation. Paul tells Philemon, what I'm about to ask you to do, what I'm about to ask you, you must do it. It's required. And I could command you to do it, but I'm not going to. Why? Why is Paul not going to command him to do it? For love's sake. Paul's an old man. He's an apostle of the Lord Jesus. And more than that, he's, even an, he's a prisoner for Christ. But he doesn't use his authority as an apostle to command Philemon's obedience. He says, I prefer to do nothing without your consent. I prefer to appeal to you in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. Paul wants Philemon to do what's right willingly. Not because he has to, but for the sake of love. Paul's like a parent that's encouraging his child to forgive the other child and to truly reconcile. And this isn't, this isn't like saying to the kid, hey, just shake hands and make up and say you're sorry, and then they go, I'm sorry, I forgive you. That's not what Paul's after. He wants them to really mean it when they say it. And I think there's a lesson here for us as we seek reconciliation. It must be out of a desire to do the right thing for love's sake. Secondly, the second lesson is that reconciliation can't be forced but it can be persuaded. Paul works really hard to persuade Philemon to receive Onesimus back as a beloved brother and not treat him the way that he deserves to be treated, right? Paul doesn't seek to force Philemon to reconcile with Onesimus by commanding him to do it, but he does say he's bold enough to do so if he needed to. And that what he's asking is required of Philemon. Paul, like the Lord, doesn't seek only outward conformity, but he desires obedience that flows from a heart that willingly wants to do what pleases the Lord. There's another lesson here for us, particularly those of us that have roles of authority, like the elders here, or the parents among us, or those that are mentoring those that are younger in the faith. We must remember that we're seeking to persuade people and change hearts, not just demand obedience and see if they obey us. So parents, as you seek to instruct your children, there are times when it's good and right for you to demand obedience from your children. But there will also be times when you need to persuade your child and, and counsel them in a way that helps them to see what the right thing is to do, but also want to do it. Desire what is good and right and pleasing to God so that they willingly obey you. That's what Paul is doing here. So as we disciple one another, we don't only want to communicate what the right thing is to do, but we also want to help one another cultivate godly desires so that we do what's right, not out of compulsion, but out of a love for God and a seeking of holiness. Paul cleverly reminds Philemon that he's an old man and a prisoner for Christ which in this culture would have added to the persuasive power of his request as an older man and one who's been imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. 
Finally, if all of this persuasive power weren't enough, he says, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Paul sounds like a parent again, right? I don't need to remind you to clean your room, otherwise you won't be able to go out this evening, do I? Because you've already remembered that and you're, gonna, you're planning already to clean it, right? I don't need to remind you, huh? Paul uses every single word in this letter to effectively persuade Philemon to do what the gospel demands of him, to reconcile with his brother Onesimus. Brothers and sisters, we should be this involved in one another's lives. When we hear of sin between brothers and sisters in the church, we should seek to encourage reconciliation. Paul does that all the time, not just here in Philemon. Do you guys remember back at the beginning of the church, we were going through the letter to the Philippian church? Do you remember Paul saying that he was writing to the whole church and he wanted to encourage them to help Judea and Syntyche to agree in the Lord? He says, help them do that. Paul also writes in, to the Colossian church, which is the one that meets in Philemon's home, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving one another, as the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. Do you know of conflict in the church? Do you know of brothers that have wronged one another? Encourage reconciliation like Paul does. Persuade them. Encourage them to forgive. Has someone confessed sin to, that, that they committed towards somebody else to you? You should encourage that brother or sister. Go, confess it, ask for forgiveness, seek reconciliation. Persuade them to do that. The third lesson that we learn about reconciliation is that reconciliation isn't cheap, it's costly. Reconciliation isn't cheap, it's costly. Paul doesn't ignore the fact that Onesimus has wronged Philemon. He doesn't downplay the situation between Philemon and Onesimus. We don't know the exact details of what's happened, but Onesimus has wronged Philemon in some way. Maybe it was theft, or maybe he cheated him. We don't know exactly. But at the very least, Onesimus ran away, and he cheated Philemon out of the service that he owed him. And so Onesimus had become useless to Philemon. Paul knows that there's a debt that's owed. Reconciliation doesn't mean ignoring the debt. It's not sweeping wrongdoing under the rug. It's costly. But it requires not counting that cost against the one who has wronged you. It's not counting the record of debt against the one who has sinned against you. Biblical reconciliation counts the cost of forgiveness and says, yes, I've been wronged. I'm owed a debt, but I'll bear the cost. I won't hold it against them. That seems a really simple concept when it's just a concept, right? But what about living that out when you've been wronged? It's impossible for us to not count a record of wrongs against one another, except by the grace of God. To really genuinely, internally absorb the cost and not to keep a track record in your hearts is only possible by God's transforming power through the gospel of grace. Reconciliation here costs Philemon because he's been wronged by Onesimus. But it also costs Onesimus. He goes back 
knowing that Philemon has every right under Roman law to punish him and to throw him in prison. Seeking reconciliation with Philemon is costly to Onesimus, as he doesn't know how it will be responded to. He doesn't know what's in store for him. Seeking reconciliation between these two brothers is even costly to Paul himself. Onesimus, following his conversion, had been serving Paul faithfully while he was in prison. And Paul says, I really want to keep him with me, actually. They've become family and partners in the faith. He says, now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf. Though Paul would be blessed by keeping Onesimus with him, he knows that this unresolved conflict with Philemon has to be reconciled for the sake of Christ. In addition, Paul says that he's willing to even bear the cost himself that Philemon owes. If he's wronged you at all, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I'll repay it, Paul says. He puts his reputation on the line, even his, the, the, the very little valuable possessions that he might have. He says, I'm willing to pay them. Reconciliation is costly. It's not cheap, brothers and sisters. And if we are to seek reconciliation as a community of faith, we must recognize that it's costly. We don't try to ignore the cost. Reconciliation doesn't pretend like nothing ever happened. And it absorbs what's happened in loving forgiveness. So really, really practically, when someone says, I'm sorry to you, the Christian response shouldn't be, hey, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. Ah, it's okay. The Christian response is, I forgive you. I forgive you. Despite the sin that you've committed against me, I still love you. What would covenant hope look like if it were marked by this kind of prayerful reconciliation? We'd be a community where it's really easy to confess wrongdoing to one another. A community that would rather be wronged and bear the cost of that than exact a payment or revenge. When other people speak a harsh word or an unkind thing towards us, we would respond with grace. When a brother or sister owes a debt to us for whatever reason, we'd be willing not to count that against them, but absorb it in love. Let's continue to seek that kind of reconciliation among us for the sake of Christ, to his glory, to his honor, to his praise. And that's one of the reasons why we always announce at least a week in advance when we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Because the Lord's Supper is a picture of our union with Christ, but it's not only a picture of our union with Christ. It's a picture of our unity together as his body. So it doesn't make sense if there's disunity in the body to come and take the Lord's Supper. So make sure that you reconcile with one another before you participate in the Lord's Supper, even today. Let it pass you by if you haven't reconciled with a brother or sister. The fourth lesson that we learn about reconciliation is that reconciliation transforms a relationship. Reconciliation transforms a relationship. Paul acknowledges that reconciliation is painful and costly, but it's also beautiful. Reconciliation both with God himself and with one another is a wonderful transformation in our relationship. 
So let's consider the relationship that Onesimus and Philemon had before this transformation took place. Philemon, as I said earlier, was a wealthy Christian who had bondservants or slaves, of which Onesimus was one. It's important that we understand that relationship between master and slave in the Roman Empire so that we can understand how it's been transformed following this letter. In the Roman world, nearly one-third of the population was, was made up of slaves, and another third were freed persons. They were formerly slaves. Unlike much modern slavery, slaves and masters in the Roman Empire weren't usually defined by race or religion. They could be from the very same city or the very same place and serve the same god or gods. Oftentimes, slavery was something that was self-imposed. It wasn't forced. In order to get oneself out of bankruptcy, and slaves could eventually earn their way out of slavery. Some slaves even had slaves themselves. The early church, including Philemon's, was part of that world. So what we see here in Philemon is really quite extraordinary. Paul tells Philemon that faith in Christ turns the social norms upside down. In Christ, the social structures and classes are utterly transformed, and core identities are radically converted. In his letter to the Colossians, that's Philemon's church, Paul puts it this way. Here, in the church, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, bondservant or free, but Christ is all and in all. At the foot of the cross, everyone's on level ground. Whether they were rich and powerful or poor and weak, both are equal partners in the same faith and members of the same heavenly household. Do you have that kind of mindset? Do you think of yourself more highly than you ought to, or perhaps more lowly than you ought to? When you consider other members of the church who are from a different economic or educational sphere to you, do you think of them as better or worse than you? What about ethnicity, or class, or caste? It's part of our fallen human nature to evaluate people on any number of things, any number of characteristics, and slot them into a social order, either above or below our own place in the order. Do you do this either consciously or subconsciously? Paul here shows us that the gospel is sufficient to transform our relationships within the church. So do your relationships reflect that reality? That you, if you have the same faith, are brother and sister? They should. We must fight and train our minds to see one another differently because of the gospel. And not only to see each other differently, but to treat one another differently. To interact with one another differently. To lovingly treat fellow Christians as brothers and sisters and equals even when they're different from us. Whether they do a different job or are from a different culture or from a different family background. In ways that the society around us just cannot explain. We must strive to have that kind of mindset 
about the brothers and sisters in our church and in the world. Look at the ways that Paul describes that transformation in Onesimus' life. Through the transforming grace of the gospel that Paul preached, Onesimus has gone from a stranger to my child whose father I became in my imprisonment, in verse 10. He's gone from being formerly useless to indeed useful, both to Paul and to Philemon in verse 11. Paul even describes how precious Onesimus has become to him by saying that when he sends Onesimus back to Philemon, he's sending his very heart. Onesimus has become like the deepest part of who Paul is through his conversion to Christ and the family of faith. And this change, Paul tells us, is eternal. Philemon will have Onesimus back forever. Verse 15. No longer as a bondservant, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, in verse 16. How is that kind of transformation even possible? How can this kind of reconciliation take place that so radically transforms our relationships, even when great wrongdoing has been done between us? Only by the grace of God in the gospel only by the grace of God in the gospel. In the gospel, we know that God himself, not out of compulsion, but out of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. In the gospel, we're reminded that God paid the great cost for us to be reconciled to him. For though we were his enemies, we have been reconciled to him by the death of his son. In the gospel, we hear that Christ, the founder of our salvation, suffered in our place that we might be holy in God's sight, so that he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. In the gospel, we are counted righteous because of the righteousness of Christ, so that the same love with which God loves his very own son can be extended to you and I, so that the father receives us just as he receives his own son. Our sin was against our heavenly master, and it had left our relationship broken. Our rebellion against God means that our relationship with God is not neutral, it's broken. An eternal debt is owed because of our wrong done against our eternal creator. You can't pay that debt. You can't do enough good works to pay your way out of that debt. You can't do enough groveling. There's nothing that can pay that debt other than Christ. But in love, God sent his only son, Jesus. Paul imitates Jesus, who intercedes on our behalf, and says, I'll pay his debt, all of it. Charge it to my account. And when he died on the cross 2,000 years ago, that debt was paid in full. It is finished. Jesus rose from the dead, defeating sin and death, showing that that debt that we owed was paid for. It was accepted so that we might be reconciled to God and so that we might have the grace to reconcile among ourselves as well. If you are here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're like Philemon. You're like Onesimus, I'm sorry. You're like Onesimus. You have a master who you've wronged and you owe a debt to. 
God himself. And he calls you to come to him, and he says he will receive you. He will forgive you. He will pay your debt for you through the shed blood of his son, Jesus. We Christians are Christ's ambassadors, and we appeal on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. Turn from your sins. Repent and trust in what Jesus has done to to write the record that you owed. If you want to know more about that, speak to one of the members at our church. Come and find me after this service and speak to me. I would have no greater joy than to share more about that with you. For the Christians here, we derive so much joy and comfort, comfort by living out the gospel in our lives as we love one another and we seek reconciliation amongst ourselves, all for the sake of Jesus. As we remember the gospel and how much we've forgiven, been forgiven by God, we can f- extend forgiveness to one another. We have to apply the gospel to our hearts every time we do that to remember how much I've been forgiven so that I can forgive those that sin against me. We gain a benefit when we see our shared faith taking action in the lives of our brothers and sisters around us, especially when we're reconciling with one another and forgiving one another and building one another up. Our hearts are refreshed in Christ when our lives as a church are transformed again and again by the gospel of grace. Paul bookends his letter with the only thing that makes any of this possible in our lives. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray that this transforming and reconciling grace be with us too. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you that you are at work in us. That you are a God who has amazing grace and offers it to us each and every day. Lord, we pray for more of your grace to be at work in our lives so that we would know how to please you in every good thing, that we would have full knowledge of every good thing that is for your sake among us. We pray that you would help us to be people that are quick to confess sin to one another and to seek reconciliation. We pray that you would help us to remember the gospel and not to count a record of wrongs. That as we remember the love that you've shown us, that would enable us to extend love to others by bearing their sins and, and, and not counting it against them, not counting a record of wrong. Lord, we thank you that you have forgiven us and you have reconciled us and you receive us back as you, even as you receive your own son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.